Please join me in welcoming Thomas DeFrance. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks, Ian, and so many friends in the room. I haven't been back to MIT since I left in 2011, and it, you know, it feels great. So I have all kinds of nostalgia, all kinds of energy on my skin and in my body. Um, but it's really positive energy, and thanks for coming out to, to old friends to be here. Um, and thanks to Ian and Giselle for inviting me. Uh, we have a little bit of a technical thing, so I'm going to be a little perplexed, but I'll figure it out. It's a great introduction, Ian. Thank you. Um, I am chair of African African American Studies at Duke and also on the faculty in dance. So um, I kind of work in these areas, and as, as um, Ian mentioned, uh, my research group, Slip Age Performance, Culture, and Technology, is now in residence at Duke. Louder? Yeah. Thank you, yeah. So Slip Age Performance, Culture, and Technology is now in residence at Duke. And this is a, a, a group that um, really works to create alternative, histori uh, alternative histories using emergent technologies. So um, if you ever have time or interest, these are performance projects for the most part. And you can find evidence of a lot of those online. Or if you ever get a chance to come visit us down at Duke, that would be terrific. Okay, so I've been working on a, a book about black social dance, and I didn't really realize it was a book until I'd published maybe four or five essays that were all trying to re-narrate how we think of black social dance. And this is a very Americanist point of view, so I want to say that from the outset. So I'm looking at African-American social dance and calling it black. So there's already this colonial maneuver there where um, Americans, we tend to place ourselves at the center of everything there is. And so I want to um, say that I'm aware of that maneuver and the kind of um, tyranny that it represents. At the same time, there's something inside black social dance that I want to try to stabilize so that hopefully some of you can knock against it and help us rethink it in better, much better ways. Um, but as it is right now, we don't really have a great way to think about social dance, especially black social dance what it's done for us, and there is an us in this construction, which might be a kind of US state, but also a kind of global state, like what black social dance in, um, enables, and the kind of capacities that it seems to allow us to engage. Uh, and so I've been trying to think about it from different directions. And the part of the project I want to share today is trying to think about queer presence and this kind of haunting of queer, especially male, queer male desire inside of black social dance and what happens when those dances move out of where they started and arrive somewhere else um, that seems to have really different sort of stakes and values in operation. Um, so that's, that's this part of the project that I want to try to share with you today. So yeah, so this project, again, it has several parts. And today I'm going to look at the, the kind of queer part that's still in formation and try to tie it to the, the dancing state part, which is also still in formation. But there, you know, so there's some moving pieces here that I'm sure you'll be able to help me in our conversation uh, make sense of. I think we're there? Turn up for what? Okay. So switch, switch the dancing body of the state. Queer social dance, political leadership, and black popular culture. Dance and translocation. <clears throat> Switch. Change it up. Revisit and revise. Funeralize it. 
flavor it, make it fresh. Surprise, not what you thought. Change the joke and slip the yoke. The yoke here will be straight time and a hyper-heterosexualized body, one that has to fit into depictions of black corporeality that assume a certain sort of swaggering, hyper-cool, dancing, laughing, melodramatic mass. That certain sort of body needs the switch. Switch is also a physical action, an exoticized elaboration of walking that emphasizes the motion of the hips. How many of you know this, this word as an actual action? Switch, to switch? Okay, a few people. A switch hitter. Switching to his own beat, moving the pelvis to accentuate the change from this to that, either or, neither nor. Not one or the other, but both maybe if you want it to be. When we switch, we need you to see us. That's the fun of the transference, to make the indeterminacy palpable. Real men don't switch, but switching isn't automatically bad. It's a recognizable mode of conveyance that draws attention to its contours. The switch is powerful. The change it heralds underscores versatility and capacity. And like any toggle, it can be turned off. Moving from the political margins toward a black mainstream, many African-American social dances emerge in queer communities of color. For example, and these are three cases for today, voguing, a demonstration social dance practice cultivated in black and Latino queer communities of the 1980s, became a recognizable dance engaged by young artists after the millennium. J-setting, a dance developed by gay African-American men in response to marching band dances performed by women in historically black colleges and universities uh, in the early 2000s, became celebrated in music videos created by Beyonce. So today in this talk, I want to explore the politically embodied consequences and affects of queer social dances that enjoy concentrated attention outside of their originary communities. J-setting, voguing, and hand dancing. And hand dancing is a form of queer popular dance that was really at its height in the 1970s and 80s before it became something else after that. These forms offer sites to consider the materialization of queer black aesthetic gesture in dances that redefine gender identities, but also confirm fluid political economies of social dance in motion. These queer dances simultaneously resist and reinscribe gender conformity in their aesthetic devices. They also suggest alternative histories of black social dance economies in which queer creativity might be valued as its own end, even as queer presence in mainstream articulations of black life continue to be devalued. When black social dances are practiced by American political leaders, as when First Lady Michelle Obama demonstrates the Dougie in her Let's Move Anti-Obesity campaign, or when Secretary of State, then Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton dances along others during her 2012 tour of Africa, South Africa, and Zimbabwe, 
uh, black social dance moves toward the center of considerations of embodied knowledge. And here I wonder at the intertwining of African-American social dances and political leadership conceived as the bodies of elected officials. In addition, I'm also considering in this alignment the commercial and socially inscribed leaders of popular culture, including Beyonce and especially Madonna, as arbiters of African-American social dance. Ultimately, I want to suggest a haunting presence of queers of color as an aesthetic and a, an array of aesthetic imperatives within political mobilizations of black social dance, continually and ironically conceived as part and parcel of rhetorics of liberation and freedom of movement. As queer dances emerge in marginalized relationship to mainstream concerns of identity and gesture, and then migrate towards shifting centers of popular culture, they shimmer and switch, bringing to light, perhaps, possibilities of creative aesthetic social dissent. Okay, so that's the big kind of proposal for the project. <laughs> what I want to do next is dig into these three forms and give us some material to work with together, give you some visual clues of what I'm looking at and trying to think through, and also some hints into the ways that I'm trying to process this material and um, start to form some arguments about what I think is inside these dances as political mobilizations. I just to be flexible, so it's like a, a, a kind of imperative of black social dance, all social dance, but especially black social dance, is flexibility is sort of an indication of, of agility <laughs> inside the dance. So we're going to go back to voguing to begin. We're going to start with trying to think about voguing, the form of ritual battle brought into something like mainstream attention by Jenny Livingston's 1990 documentary, Paris is Burning. And that's, I'd like to just remind you a little bit of what that film looked like and felt like. I usually strange. In a ballroom, you can be anything you want. You're not really an executive, but you look like an executive. And therefore, you're starting to say, well, yeah. I can be an executive. Yeah. If I had the opportunity, I could be one. Because I can look up. And that is like a fulfillment. Your peers, yeah. your friends are telling you, oh, you're going to be an executive. Is this the businessman of the 80s or what? I fashion Parisian. Model the back. Chante. 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 Okay, and hopefully everyone in this room has thought about this work and had some, uh, some occasion to encounter it. And of course, if you haven't, that's your assignment for tonight. You need to just go watch this and start to reflect upon it. Um, the basic critique of Paris' Burning underscores that the film, the film casts black creativity as a pathology endured by a social underclass always already removed from any possibility of recognizable existence. The subjects of the film are forced into positions as interlocutors um, for an assumedly uninitiated audience. Who could actually know these queers of color? The film seems to ask again and again. Who could actually ever have known them? And the film explains itself by way of confessional narratives and section headers, and we just saw one of them, um, to present its inherent pathos and the whole set to an electronic music beat. 
The triumph of these lives of the film are found in a performative self-deception of queer dress-up and dance. Illusory self-presentation, patently false but imaginative, aligns with flamboyance in a dance form too bizarre to be anything less than queer. And here, in the context of this film, queer might be financially, vul financially vulnerable, emotionally under-resourced, and often delusional in its self-awareness. Okay, so the film, you know, goes through different kinds of categories and talks about the balls themselves and how they're constructed at the time. And of course, ball culture has become something quite different two generations later, um, and it's still very much um, a, a lively and animated site. But I want to jump ahead now to uh, some of the, the some of the footage on voguing, the dance form that's kind of embedded inside the balls. Okay, I think this is it. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Sorry, my cues are a little off because of um, the different computer. Okay, sorry. Okay, here we go. Okay. The name is a statement in itself. I mean, you really wouldn't 
So watching Vogue, though, and not dancing ourselves, after we get past our stilled amazement at the virtuosity demonstrated in this non-touching physical competition, we might notice how this performance describes community as a willingness to improvise together. These first and second generation Voguers fall into rhythm with each other. They mirror poses that they see the other do to cap or top each other. They revel in their ability to execute this peculiar form of ritual dance. Paying attention only to the competitive strains of the form and its harsh posturing, we can easily miss that it might be pleasurable to move alongside others, even in competition. This capacity of pleasure alongside the anxiety of performance falls within the turn to dance that operates outside of language. Embodied knowledge that is improvisational, particular, and untranslatable matters deeply. In these queer gestures, physical awareness and strategic flexibility arrive as measures of wit, determination, and innovation. Voguing is judged and valued for its unexpected revelations of individual ability. Voguing also signals a return, to, uh, a return to a glamour as a category of extravagance and the celebration of a feminine, but an entirely ersatz feminine, ersatz glamour and ersatz extravagance. The overdoneness of the form and its context, the balls themselves, speak to a paratheatrical or meta-performative space of fantasy that is necessary as an aspect of any healthy everyday. But the actual physical expectations of Vogue practitioners continue to rise among third and fourth generation dancers. Okay, let's see if I can do this. Yep. Sorry, 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 sorry. Sorry, it's very loud. Okay. So these are more contemporary Voguers. We were watching Voguing from 89, uh, 89 and 90. Now we're looking at 2012, 2013. By now, Voguers um, routinely execute harrowing drops and contortions that require an expertise and physical fitness not available to all those who might want it. <laughs> Voguing on a global stage is an entirely virtuosic expression by now, loaded with ornate turns of physical phrase and predetermined gestural details. Voguing by now is something of an industry built around its ability to harness a competitive ferocity within this ersatz feminine queer container. In this move towards professionalization and commodification, some of the wit of oblique understatement may surely be replaced by a desire to do the dance rather than engage it as an avenue of queer expression. This tension of transformation might be a challenge for any black social dance that survives its brief moment of unencumbered social popularity before the seemingly inevitable tilt toward the marketplace. And what a tilt it's been for voguing. By now we have a Vogue Studies marketplace available for consumption. There are Vogue categories of dance competitions that are produced by multinational commodities sports drinks and athletic gear, video game companies and the like. And there's also voguing offered as life coaching available for finding your inner cunty, if you will excuse the lingo of the trade, 
And you know, so you can find, again, this is just a kind of limitation of working on someone else's machine, but there are um, uh, websites that offer curricula and voguing as kind of life coaching and as a way to, um, as a way to kind of understand possibilities um, as a way to understand the possibilities of voguing as uh, an embodied practice that will essentially allow this kind of ferocious feminine to, to create space for agency. So the dance has become a, a thing or a container that allows engagement with this embodied practice that's somehow tied to, to 21st century market and spirituality. So we're going to move on now to J setting. And, um, Voguing was a solo form and, and contributed parts of its zeitgeist to J-setting, a group form built around display and team-based performance strategies of competition. J-setting didn't begin as a team competition, but rather as entertainment aligned with the pageantry of football games, like the drum majors that we have in marching bands, whom Robert Ferris Thompson, the art historian who worked at Yale for many years, um, he cited them as an Africanist invention of the Americas. The drum majorettes put down their batons to dance as a group around 1969, 1970. And throughout the 1970s, J-setting style came into focus. J-setting, like fraternity and sorority stepping, began as a black performance practice that was only materialized in black spaces, but it grew to be recognizable to larger audiences as it gained mainstream attention in the 1990s. So. So here's Motown's 30th anniversary. This is around 19, this would have been like 1990, I guess. And we start with some drum majors. They're followed by um, J-setters. So HBCU drum majors, it's very highly energetic, performative, lots of energy, presentational dance. And then the women you see in front of the band are the J-setters. So this complex choreography, it's entirely expressive, but regimented, but also expressive at the same time, but not what you would see in other kinds of bands from the drum majors necessarily. A particularly black sort of mode of expression. And, you know, here comes the band dancing as they're playing. As you watch the women, they would have been the, the baton twirlers maybe in some other context in an earlier iteration, but by now they're dancing. That's their, their responsibility. is going on okay so let's jump ahead now into um, let's take a look at oh I like partition I'm a Beyonce fan she's gonna come back again in a minute so let's see the JSU's um, J, J setters doing partition
So through the 1970s and 1980s, this, this particular form grew up like this. And this, this is a film from 2012. So it's already in a feedback loop because by 2012, it's become a black queer practice and then bounced back into this kind of heteronormative mainstream. So we're already seeing it within a couple of mirrors here. Talk a little bit over it before we switch films. Uh, like voguing, the queer version of the dance. So we saw 1990 at the Motown show, and you know it was kind of very tame. But the women were there dancing, and you know in this kind of public space. Um, but the queer, the queer version of the dance grew up um, in nightclubs, in private spaces where queers of color congregated. J setting features transference of the women's form of display as a metaphorically ironic but physically serious engagement or approximation of style and structure. Structurally, J-setting has a much stronger proximity to a 21st century everyday than voguing every, ever could. The root of J-setting is familiar to anyone who's seen a halftime show at a football game, and the group dynamic that calls for unison dancing allows uninitiated viewers to make determinations of ability and affect by watching the dancers casually. The competitive queer form of the dance assumes a watching audience who will help encourage the dancers and help determine the winner of each battle by way of their responses to the performance. So let's switch to uh, a film from Atlanta Pride, um, Atlanta LGBT Pride, the same year as the, the partition. Um, and here's um, a few different crews of guys competing um, as J-setters. It's interesting to note that the celebrity afforded the form of J-setting comes after queer men take on its physical strategies. The public spectacle of black queer J-setting becomes more noteworthy than the dancing of women of color, the first J-sitters who initiated the form. In some ways, queer titillation beats out heteronormative fantasy. So, the boys are more important to a profitable, racialized, and sexual, sexualized narrative 
than the ladies who we saw before. The hard bounce and recoil that define the form call for a certain tension and tightness uh, alongside the production of an unrelenting energetic dispersal. Unlike voguing, poses in J-setting are passed through on the way to the next hard accent and pounce, but it is the constant bouncing that the bouncing through that defines the form, rhythm revealed in phrasing that allows accents to pop out, unexpected, powerful, and relentless. By now, by 2015, J-setting has its own television show with the Prancing Elites, a group picked up by the mainstream media to provide a certain kind of local color to reality television programming. And this is a show that's just starting, I think it's next week, it's on Oxygen. Um, the show is in production and will launch very soon and will surely trade in the usual reality TV drama. And let me see if I can go to a, a Time Magazine layout. And again, I just apologize for the awkwardness here, but we'll get there. Um, time, com, 39809687, Prancing Elites. Dance troupe. Nope, nope, not quite. Let's try again. Time come. I'll let you listen to it. Huh? Three eight oh nine six eight seven. Okay. Okay, so I found them. So, um, you know, Time Magazine ran this last year, uh, a photo essay about the prancing elites who are going to, who have their own TV show starting in a couple weeks. Um, and as with Paris is Burning, the, the, the photo essay and kind of the, the mainstream narratives always uh, cast the creative expression as this kind of um, rising up from out uh, under odd, patho pathologically inclined to, to perform in this weird way. So there's always this kind of pathos affiliated with these queer bodies of color in their creative expression. Like that seems to be um, an important part of the narrative. All right, Jay setting. So then hand dancing, I want to reach back further into the histories of queer black social dance from the competitive forms of voguing, so voguing is a solo form that's competitive, J-setting is a, a group form that's competitive, um, we might want to consider the couple form of disco and hand dancing. These are the most everyday forms of queer social dance, probably practiced by more folks, queer and not so queer, from the 1960s forward. These are the dances made excessively popular by Saturday Night Fever, even as that mode of dance was already something uh, in a bit of a decline by the time that movie came out. Hand dancing is a version of Lindy and swing dance that rose in popularity in the 1930s. These elaborate working through of the possibilities of partnership became the stuff of spectacle as expert social dancers cleared dance floors to demonstrate their synergies and television and film became more and more willing to screen these expertises. So let me give it a go. So this is Al Mins and Leon James, who were two expert dancers at the time of the, the real Lindy Hop craze. And then by the 1950s, they're working as demonstrators of black social dances. And in this um, DuPont Hour little excerpt, 
they're going to do a bunch of old-timey dances, and they're going to end with this hand-dancing partner, partner material that they're going to do together. Um, here we might think about an even more explicit gender dynamic to how queer versions of hand dancing take center stage. While intricate couple dancing usually stabilized a heterosexual unit, the most elaborate iterations of these dances, as in the Argentinian tango, um, flourished among same-sex male partnerships. Innovations in social dance forms are largely registered among men who have been socialized to claim ownership of intellectual material, like movement sequences or particular maneuvers. And so that's what we'll see here as, as men's and Jane, uh, James and men demonstrate. Women had little space to claim creative copyright, if that was ever an intention within social dance. And traditions of male authorship of material, borrowed from most every other realm of social exchange, also apply to social dance in public. So the work of James and men contributes a tradition, continues a tradition of queer men demonstrating the virtuosic ends of something that should be, by common sense standards, uh, involving the presence and performance of women. So let's take a look at this last part. dancers practice at home or on the dance floor and become expert through their repeated engagement with the form. These are the dances of Studio 54 in the 1980s and also the Paradise Garage, wildly underdocumented and under-theorized, but foundational to slightly more recognizable forms like Chicago Stepping. Chicago Stepping. So Stepping has deep roots in African-American communities as a fancy dance for two, a public-private demonstration of partnership, flexibility, and improvisational elegance. Step stepping is generally known as a heteronormative sort of form designed for men and women to dance in couples, but we can find a strong and persistent strain of queer dance in these forms. Stepping explores the smooth passage of energy in an elevated, ever-circular exploration of space and timing. While some sequences of stepping or hand dancing can be practiced and repeated, the form is largely spontaneous in execution, with movement sequences discovered in the activity as it proceeds. A cool demeanor, always demonstrated, 
overrides the social pressure to perform well and enlivens the public performance. Watching, we are invited to consider the micro-choice making embedded within each gentle tug of leader and follower, each turn and dip, each unexpected pause, and the triumphant spinning out of long, extended passages of smooth velocity. Okay, so that's um, sort of thumbnail ways to think about voguing, j-setting, and hand dancing. I want to talk now about the movement to mainstream. These queer social dance forms have each profound, um, each have profound mainstream presence that continues to ripple outward in the 21st century. We've already mentioned Saturday Night Live in the place of hand dancing as public dance spectacle. John Travolta's closeted gay persona added a patina of queer attraction to his performance in the movie as the site, as he became the site of dance excellence to be emulated by all. Okay, so as we're watching this, try to think about what you just saw, the stepping, the stepping demonstration. It was more contemporary to this um, sequence from um, Saturday Night Fever. Why it's so dark? Travolta's quasi-queer whiteness takes on the simplest versions of hand dancing to offer a palatable form that could be approached by dancers who saw the movie and wanted to act it out. The complexities of spontaneous execution are removed for the sake of the film sequence, and we witnesses are encouraged to notice only how smooth, sexy, and confident the dancers seem to be in this form. And you know, it's always interesting to watch kind of where the camera, where the narrative is on the, the principal characters and then the other people who are always much worse dancers and they're not, you know, their energy is dispersed in, in, in um, um, odd fields, it goes in any direction. And you know, we know we're supposed to pay attention to the main characters who da whose dancing is more precise. Um, simplification was also crucial for the entry of voguing into the broadest mainstream as we all know from Madonna's song and dance of the 1990s. So if we think about the voguing that we saw before and Madonna wanted to give it a go herself as a dancer and performed an ultra-simplistic sort of approximation of the form as a repeatable, prefigured sequence of gestures. Of course, voguing in context needs to be spontaneous and configured within competition and display 
doing the dance on a stage for an audience removes much of the foundational ethos for the existence of the form. But we not, might notice Madonna's willingness to try something so very far from her own experience, and in that effort, she models our collective access to these dance gestures. We might also notice that when the song builds to an energetic climax, she discards voguing completely, and she shifts to doing a version of The Running Man, which is a dance form that would never be <laughs> a part of a voguing sequence, but it sort of made sense in her logic of black dance form she wanted to engage. And that comes later in the, the performance or the video, if you've seen that. Beyonce's work with J-setting can open a conversation about engagement and appropriation. It's pretty easy to call any white presence in black expressive forms appropriation with all of the negative connotations that might surround asymmetrical access to distribution and celebrity. Madonna appropriates voguing, but is that also what happens when Beyonce J-sets in single ladies? I want to open space to consider engagement with cultural form as a useful analytic of social exchange across difference. Appropriation might always be about a powerful and a weak actor in relationship and the reification of structural asymmetries. Appropriation seems to be already done and complete in its execution, leaving little space for the consideration of the quality of the exchange. In noting Madonna or Beyonce's engagement with these queer black dance forms of uh, queer forms of black dance, maybe we can begin to talk about how these artists are physically invested in these practices and the quality of their gestures within the forms. Beyonce is a powerful performer and can actually, she demonstrates, J-set alongside at least the college groups and queer dance teams that produce the form. Madonna is a much less experienced voguer and she couldn't survive a competition in the form except maybe alongside a rank amateur. Both of these artists, though, engage these dance forms and, yes, appropriate them for stage performance and music videos. But in parsing their performances and their engagement with the forms, we might all learn more about what constitutes their successful deployment and the quality of their character as dance. And for an obvious example of failed appropriation and poor engagement with black social dance, we have to turn briefly to, yes, Miley Cyrus. <laughs> Sorry. But we need to go there for a moment. Okay, so this is Miley Cyrus trying to twerk and, you know, all the controversy that happened around that. So what's most interesting, in, interesting to me in the swirl of appropriate critique <laughs> leveled against this debacle is the presence of talented J-setters J-setters alongside two chains later in the same song, hugely complicating a general concern surrounding twerking in public. Where Cyrus is gross and awkward, trashy and indistinct in her physical gestures, 
slightly uncomfortable, unstructured, and profoundly uncool. The J setters who appear later in the dance offer powerful, rhythmically sophisticated, and structurally confident renderings of their group choreography. And you know, this is often forgotten, like the number had this part in the middle, but it actually ended with this. You know, there, was, there were actual dancers who understood the form and tried to get at it and see what could happen through it. So while the J setting choreography here is surely heteronormalized, it also holds space for the agency of its dancers to ring forward in an undeniably potent physical statement of presence. So we see how these queer dance forms arrive in mainstream iterations among entertainers, but what happens when they also show up in the movements of our political leaders, when the US state dances? In another part of this project, I'm looking at the ways that black social dances are deployed to, to, um, to, a to, to create a narrative of a black body politic, whether there are black people present or not, with evidence drawn from various White House inaugural functions across different historical periods. I'm especially taken by videos made at um, George Bush, the second George Bush's first inauguration, where an all-white crowd does the electric slide in celebration of his swearing in. I'm also looking at the ways in which Ronald Reagan allowed breakdancing to arrive as official entertainment for his second inaugural activities. He smiled and giggled as a group of young performers offered their best versions of pop, popping, locking, up rock, and floor work in documentation from his second inauguration. My project takes a turn to consider the impact of engagement that is not depicted or received as appropriation at the level of state involvement. In this, we might have all seen the videos from Hillary Clinton's tour of South Africa and Botswana in 2012 when she engaged in the social performance dance of the event she attended. And she did not shy away from the physical implications of her movements. And I just have a little more, but I'll go ahead and read over it. Clinton's willingness to engage the dance caused a flurry of uncomfortable speculation um, along the lines of going native. Could our Secretary of State really enjoy the creative expression of Africanist derivation? Okay, and you know, if you're curious about these videos and what happened in that moment, there's you know, lots of documentation that's, that's really interesting in the way it kind of sets out this primitive, civilized, black dance bad, white people doing it, unusual. So all of those narratives that we, we have every day in our lives in the United States, um, where this, this became a screen to project all of that anxiety on. More recently, of course, Michelle Obama has modeled a dancing state in her Let's Move campaign, and I'm trying to think about the terms of acceptability for black social dance, already haunted by queer innovation as the physical resource of White House embodiment. As we watch the first video, so we'll give it a go, as we watch this first video, um, please pay attention to the battle mask moment, fleeting though it is, that defines the First Lady's deepened engagement with the Dougie. Okay, so we'll just watch the first part up to where she does the dug.
Okay. So, you know, Obama's become something of a dancing first lady, which is awesome to me. And she's gently allowing that persona to be a black woman's dancing self. She's moving there towards this sort of public black social self as a dancer. She's moving there in steady progression from her Let's Move video, where she very much protected her amateur dance status in order to not overwhelm a nation that tends to be suspicious of expressive physical ability. She went into a campy queer mode in her work with Jimmy Fallon in drag, which I'm sure you've seen. But let's remind it. Oh, help me here. Evolution Mon dancing. Okay. Um, and I'll start it so we can get near the end here. She went into a campy queer mode in her work with Fallon and Drag as they demonstrated mom dancing in a couple of popular appearance and videos. Here we'll notice her more confident approach to her own dancing. Um, the reference that the choreography makes to Beyonce's excellence, well beyond either of their abilities. And also, though, notice the end of the skit and the narrative that privileges her deepened engagement with black social dance that literally knocks Fallon's character from the stage. It's just a little bit more. So they do just a hand, you know, like can't approach Beyonce, but they can reference how great she is. Okay, so you know, so we get the narrative. By now, um, Michelle Obama is a competent black social dancer, and she's better than Jimmy Fallon's mom could be. And he has to leave the stage so she can do her version of the doggy. So to end, let's take a look at uh, Michelle Obama in full physical presence, dancing alongside Ellen and a group of phys uh, professional dancers. So, you know, kind of the evolution of Michelle Obama as a public dancer. Um, uh, goes to this place where she's allowing herself to dance alongside professionals. And um, here we'll witness her competence as a black social dancer, able to make rhythmic distinctions, provide accents and emphases at her will, and a fully present status in the movements choreographed for the occasion. She becomes herself more and more, it seems, and that self is actively engaged in black social dance. Let's see if I can skip ahead. Okay, they have some chatter. The dancers come out. There's a controversy with their microphone. And then they start again.
Let's have one more paragraph. To conclude, the state dances black and it engages queer presence in the hauntings that produce its dances. Queer presence might be marginalized and spectacularized by the archive, a funny contradictory trick that simultaneously celebrates and demeans. But as these gestures of resistant queer expression find their way onto the bodies of our shared dancing and into the physical references offered by our political leaders, we are more and more present in unanticipated provocation. Queer presence sparkles in a resistance to physical disinterest. We see it sometimes. We feel its unruly and joyous call to embodied voicing. In that moment, we switch, and the light comes on. Fugitive or no, queers of color make space for physical dissidence and creative expression. Thank you. Thank you, Tommy, for managing sure. with the uh, complicated technology. Well done. Machines everywhere. All right. Time for some uh, discussion. We're still a little bit past 6 30, but. Uh, please. Yeah, please. And please introduce yourself, too, so everybody can know who you are. Hi, um, I'm Joaquin Cabernet. I'm visiting uh, lecture. Literature, but more importantly, I'm a former student of uh, Tommy that took several classes with him when I was a student here at MIT. Um, it was a really wonderful presentation, um, and I have so many questions, so I'm just going to yeah. try to narrow it down to one and, and bear with me as I try to formulate it. Sure. One of the things you mentioned at the end was the idea of the, of the archive, and it got me thinking mm -hmm. about Jose Munoz mm -hmm. talking about yeah. performances of, of, of queer men of color, and in the sort of early 2000s or late 90s, he's sort of longing for an archive of the ephemeral because mm -hmm. he thinks that these performances are occurring in, in ephemeral spaces and that you know the, the few records that we yeah. have are things like Madonna's voting video or Paris's burning, which are problematic yeah. to say the least. Um, so I wonder, what do you think about this idea that uh, and, and we sort of had it played out here even with sort of with, with the Dropbox. Now that we, now we, that we do have uh, 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 very much an archive of the ephemeral available for queer men of, of color to, to record their performances. So when you when you were talking about voguing, and you're talking about sort of the industry that's going on around it. I'm also, I was also thinking, yes, there's there's mm -hmm. that, but there's also you know this wealth of sort of homemade videos that, yeah. can, that can go online. And so when I want to look up somebody like Leone, yes, I might end up seeing Leone yeah. in the Willow Smith video or on uh, you know or as part of Vogue Evolution on MTV, but I'm just as likely to see her pop up in you know, somebody who's in the audience taking, uh, taking a video of her. So there's, there seems to be this, what do you make of the fact that, that, that is there some, some sort of democratization or is it, are we still really, you know, are, is, are we still really in the, in the realm of, of appropriation and, um, and is that just sort of a, 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 yeah. a side tangent there? Yeah. Yeah, thanks for that. That's terrific. And, you know, so Munoz, of course, is really important to thinking through queers of color in any register to try to be in, in, in collaboration or at least reflection upon some of his, his concepts. And there's a way that, you know, he and Diana Taylor, who's the archive in the repertoire, you know, they, they're disagreeing in this kind of fundamental way. And I'm trying to figure out where I am in the relationship to this. One of the problems with dance is all of these references to spectacular. So in this part I didn't do, I didn't read the part that's about um, the problem of the archive. So the problem of the archive in black social dance is that 
we're always seeing the absolute most excellent. So those things that you're talking about, the kind of someone filming someone, we actually never, I would say pretty much never, see someone trying to figure out how to do a step and not doing it well. Not doing it horribly, like we love the funny fails. Like funny fails we all see. You know, we see when she falls off the table, she's trying to sing her original song, or you know, someone twerking really badly and runs into a wall. But just the kind of everyday people sort of dancing kind of mediocre. That's not the archive. The archive is the, the, the people who are, you know, they're J-setting in a park in public in Atlanta, in, you know, day glow color, you know, like, so the archive is already way, way tilted towards this um, weird virtuosity, spectacular virtuosity. And um, that's really true for black social dance. That hasn't shifted. So even as there's more material, you know, I would venture that maybe we don't have methods to understand how to, how to actually look at the kind of dry long so or everydayness, the kind of everyday people's dances, we're still, you know, like moths to the flame, going to look at the extremes on either end. So then that archive is, is hugely flawed. And, you know, so that's what I'm trying to, I'm trying to work on exactly this question you're raising. So what do we do about that? And for those of you in, in comparative media studies, this is a huge question, like what is the actual archive? So it's one thing to say, well, the archive is everything because it's available. But if we don't really work with everything that's available, then maybe we do need to be able to, again, articulate what is our archive and what does it represent? And you know, how would we actually look at a, a, a kind of vertical array of, of ability and relationship to dance would be a great question. Yeah, thanks. It's terrific. That's great, Charmaine. Thanks. I think that's your essay, <laughs> and I want to read it. No, I do appreciate it. Now, you know, I'm not going to poach unless there's your name there too. You know, it, switch seems important to me because I was just kind of I'm looking for embodied, and Snap is embodied. Um, but maybe there's something. So just why I'm interested in switch. There's something that's more sustained, even as even as it represents a toggle that I'm really curious about. So to switch, there's this happening in the switch or this. Um, and then there's still the, the off-on, the, the zero-one to it that's, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I, I love thinking of that Beyonce song, though, and, and yeah, and this idea that, you know, snapping, two-snap, a-snap, um, you know, we, we all know the, um, 
men in films and you know like that whole kind of rhetoric of, of that kind of black gesture I don't know that that gesture was ever thought of as a dance so again I'm trying to focus towards dance but there's something really evocative and important in there that I'll be um, delighted to reflect upon thanks yeah is this snap a dance gesture yeah. Thank you for that, but please never apologize with critique. Like, critique is the only way that these ideas get better, and um, we're really bad in the United States about modeling critique that's not combative, so I don't have a problem. You know, I'm a full professor. Say what you want, you know. <laughs> Snap. <laughs> but, you know, like, there's a silliness in that, but there's truth in that, too. We've got to figure out how to have these conversations to help move the ideas for all of us together, so it helps me. Um, I have two responses that I think are just going to be, you know, interesting for me to figure out. So the erasure idea, I, I kind of start there and I forget that I might want to put a more fine point on that. It's like, well, yeah, the, you know, the problem suggested by the project is that queers of color are dematerialized and erased. So we start there. It's like we seem to have no way to appreciate and, and discuss and make resources available to and reach out to and talk you know, like so queer color where are they they don't exist so you know so I'm starting from the place of going well here in terms of dance movement some things that have been produced over the last 50 years and how they keep arriving but there is that that narrative of erasure invisibilization that you know, will certainly come in the larger project. It helps me to hear you say, gee, you didn't hear that at all. Um, that goes without saying, but it doesn't go without saying, I need to say it. Like, there's a problem. You know, it's a problem that um, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of queer folk who are making, having these creative responses to everyday life that become these dance forms and these possibilities for expression are routinely pushed out of the frame. At some point, they can't be in the frame anymore some point we can't be in front of the group so you know how does that work um, I want to think about sort of queer failure I, I, I really appreciate that you want to allow my you know my desires or someone the the ability to fail and let that fail inspire the conversation um, I, I guess I want to be attendant to her whiteness 
So, you know, if she were Beyonce failing at a dance form, like, what does that do? Like, so then how does race, it's not about comparing, like, who's better or who's not, but just how does race play into the possibility? Um, how does her whiteness allow her to do whatever she wants in a way? So she starts a conversation by being bad. She'd start a conversation by being good. You know, it, it, in a way, it, it doesn't matter because her, her, her kind of, um, her age, so, so her age group and her whiteness, um, you know, they kind of predetermine that she's going to be the center of the conversation in some way. And then um, what I want to do as someone who works on dance is actually figure out how to talk about her performance. And I do want to claim a kind of expertise. Like, so people who work in dance, we, we train in the way that people who write all the time work on writing in, in kind of being able to characterize um, how gesture is valued by a performer. You know, so part of it's em empathy and it's mirror neurons. So, you know, if you do something, I can kind of feel um, where you're going to go. And so then I can, I can sort of understand how she's holding her weight, where her energy is, where she doesn't have the, the presence and she doesn't understand what the, the girdle can do and how to animate her lower back. And that's part of why she can't do it well. So she's just not practiced enough in the way that Beyonce can um, fall into that bounce that is the characterization of J-setting. Like, she understands that thing because she understands where her weight needs to be and how to distribute it and what kind of spirit needs to be called on in the dance. So, so I do want to claim that kind of expertise and I hope that that's what could be useful for people who don't work on dance to read by someone who does work on dance and what you have to say about how you're experiencing that performance. Um, and so like those, those kind of pointed words about her failure, I know it's weird because we don't usually do that as academics. But I wonder in performance if that's not going to be a useful turn to make, is to kind of claim agency as not expert witnesses, but, but as people engaged with the forms and um, trying to narrate quality. It's a tricky turn, but I think you know, I'm going to give it a go for a few years, see what happens. Thanks. Hey, you're here. Hi. It's so good to see you. Thanks for coming through. And, you know, it's, yeah, you know, like there's, um, you know, in scholarships, I'm going to go big picture for a second. In, in scholarship, there is a kind of like, you know, you know there's a, 
there's a mournfulness that comes with reflection. You know what I mean? So like taking the stance of, well, I'm not going to just do the dances. I'm actually going to reflect on and theorize. So I'm going to try to narrate what people are already doing. But there is always going to be this mournfulness that comes from the, um, you know, our supreme inability to really kind of do it all, as you say. Um, you know, so just to try to turn that around, you know, and I do to make these, these kinds of turns toward joy. And, I use those words, and I know I'm using them, and I know that, that you might hear them and think, that's weird. How can you say beauty? How can you say joy? Um, and I don't mean it in a kind of a flattened, um, they're just words way, but I'm trying to figure out how to reanimate some of these concepts and allow them a certain complexity that, that makes them fizzy that could do some of the work you're asking about. And you know, so my hope would be that in talking about Leon James and Al Min next to Beyonce, that you start to understand that these connections and crossovers, they're real. And you know, we get to Michelle Obama knowing how to do the Dougie, you know, well, we need to read, we need to hear it from her, where she dances a little girl and, and who are her kind of dancing idols. Um, but dance is still a form that's in, in, in large part body to body, not all, of course, by now. There's lots you learn from watching videos, but there's something that happens in the presence of other people with our physiognomy. That's, that's really worth paying attention to. So I'm with you, and thanks for that. Let's come up front, and then we'll go to the back. Great. Um, oh, Anika. Hi, Anika. Yeah. 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 I'm interested in what Paloma mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, I guess in some ways, returning potentially to the Miley Cyrus problem. Mm -hmm. um, I was curious, and maybe, and this is a question for you, but also for anyone else who has yeah. Well, thanks, Anika. Uh, Anika. It's, um, you know, it's a big question, and I don't want to throw appropriation away, but I also do want to kind of give a space to rethink it alongside you. I think appropriation, like beauty or joy, there's a way that it's co-opted into all bad, and I, I'm not sure how useful it is as an idea, a concept to deploy right now, because you know, there's a way that it, it just seems to kind of grab everything, and, and it's hard to understand that there could be you know, even saying good appropriation sounds bad. Like, there's something weird about that. Like, what do you mean good appropriation? So, you know, I'm, I'm curious about engagement. Because there is a way that when people live in a form, 
you know, it's like, does Eminem appropriate, so we go white celebrity artists, you know, black cultural form yet again, Eminem, um, MC, he's trying to be an MC or he's an MC, but it's like, okay, well, he's engaged in being an MC, and, you know, and is he good at it? Well, yeah, he's good at it. So then is it appropriation? Well, then there's this question you have about context, and he'd be the first one to talk about who he listened to and who his mentors are and who are his, his sort of... Um, um, lyrical ancestors and whatnot. So, you know, maybe there's a case where there's an engagement with the form and also an embodied kind of living in it. I mean, the Alvin Ailey Company, which I wrote a book about, like, they always had white dancers, even though these were black expressive forms. And for Ailey, as an artist, he was like, yeah, well, these are forms, but they're available to people who are willing to engage them. So that's kind of was his rhetoric and his logic. He was going to make space for white and Asian, um, and obviously Latino and brown and native dancers, but they had to be willing to engage these black dance forms the way he was imagining them. So, you know, engagement, appropriation, maybe there's something there, and those might not be the, the best concept ways to, to kind of build this, this binary or, or outside to appropriation, but I'm just giving that a go for now. Like, well, where's the engagement? And as you say, she was a bad dancer, so, you know, you knew that, and, you know, with your sense of what might constitute good dancing. So, you know, there you have it. Like, so bad artistry, or, you know, bad, that's, that's a little severe, but artistry that's un, unfulfilled in, in lots of ways, which is what we're seeing here, you know, is that appropriation? If it's a failure, it's a failure in some ways. So maybe, maybe it's something else. I don't know. Oh, good, okay. okay. Um, I, first of all, thank you so much for sure. the people talk to uh, in Eskimo, which I don't attend to gesture and movement and dance as much yeah. as we need to, so this is really great for me to be here. Sure. Um, uh, and, yeah, this, I really appreciate the way you talk about appropriation. Uh, you, you give it so much depth in a way that we often get so flat as to know that appropriation is bad. I am guilty of doing that myself a lot. Um, and I think it, well, part of what you're saying, it sounds like, has to do with uh, giving it sort of the value, giving a value or worth to the, these types of forms by saying, no, it's worth gaining mastery of this. It's hmm. like, uh, trying to become virtuosic mm -hmm. this. And that almost perhaps, not to say that, that that means that that would be good appropriation then, and if you don't do that, it's bad, but rather that we maybe could attend to this idea that, um, well, this person is, is, is a virtuoso of this form. They clearly have invested time and energy Joy into it, right? Mm -hmm. and that means something. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if there's more to say yeah. about that. I would, I would be curious to know how sort of virtuosity and mastery uh, fit in there. And I just very quick second question. Sure. Um, related to because I'm a nephew, yeah, and can you say a little more mad about that last part? Continuity. Yeah, I'm thinking like, like what is? It's hard to know from yeah, like from a, from a document like Paris is burning. Sometimes it feels like it's hard to know sonically what exactly is happening. Um, you know, while this is while, while this is going on, um, you know, while someone's voguing, say, and what is the yeah, what's the sort of relationship between the dance music there versus say in popular music, whether it's in a music video or in a performance. Okay, that's a great question. Maybe we could start there because that's that's 
that's really interesting. And you know, and there's um, yeah, so you know, we're we're in Africanist structures of music and dance. Music and dance are emerging simultaneously. They're in relationship to each other. You don't suddenly have J setting without the emergence of bounce. So you know, like the music and the dance are growing up together in in relationship, and that's still true uh, even as the music's entirely digital and trially mediated. There's nothing live in that classic sense of liveness. Um, but there's still a relationship between dancers and, and musicians to create these sonic universes. And, you know, I like to think about, like, what Big Frida does with bounce music. Well, that's kind of what the ballroom sounded like 15 years ago. And so now there's a way that that's turned into something that you can hear on the radio or get a CD, um, you know, or, or buy a CD or download something, you know, that she's making. Um, but that continuity, you know, I think you already know the an, an answer to that, that question. Um, by the time we get to, to mainstream media or commodified stuff, everything's been kind of dusted and, and flattened and, and turned into something else uh, to make it palatable and accessible in a certain way. So the kind of um, the interesting weirdness of the, the sonic worlds of these dances is, is pretty much gone by the time you're going to see it on MTV or or be able to buy a video or see something, you know what I mean? So, so much is not able to be captured by the signal um, in terms of how that exchange works in presence. Uh, but it's a really interesting question. And again, these dances and song, you know, the music and the dances have lives alongside each other. And maybe there's a way that voguing in 2015 looks really different because the Sonic universe is so different, you know, than it was in 1990. So the kinds of movements that are being generated by dancers in response to sounds that are actually playing in the space, but also sounds that you've heard that you're not hearing now, but you're remembering as you're dancing. They become part of what, what gets produced by the bodies. So, you know, it's just important to keep, keep that in mind that it's all simultaneously there. It doesn't go away, and there's no silo. There's no vacuum. Um, so we have those, the memory of those earlier sounds, even as new music's produced now. I think the rhetoric around virtuosity and mastery is maybe a great place to to kind of all of us reflect on. Because, yeah, we've got to be careful. I've been working on this beauty project for a while. And, you know, beauty is really hard to recuperate. And I don't, I'm not trying to be that person who's like, yeah, mastery, <laughs> virtuosity. Like, no, I want to be really careful and suspicious. And, you know, in dance studies, mastery, we kind of kicked that to the curb 15 years ago. It's like, well, you know, if you're trying to teach a dancer to master something, they're never actually going to be engaged with the becoming, you know, this idea that you're becoming through expression, not that you're hitting the line and you're there and, you know, like, so, so mastery and, you know, mas you know mastery is a concept, it's very complicated and, you know, there's lots of disruption of this in literary theory around mastery and master-slave and, you know, Foucault has a lot to say about mastery and, you know, so, you know, so there's a lot to ask to go back there, but in the arts we're, we're struggling for ways to talk about Maybe I want to call it value. And it's not good value necessarily, bad value, but where is value? So then we can talk about how weight's being used and where accents are valued um, without it necessarily being about um, a value judgment. But as we see certain kinds of language keep recurring, maybe that's how we demonstrate you know, what's important in the performance. And maybe that's a way to talk about um, kind of mastery, if you will, but without using that kind of rhetoric. Because um, I would be really, um, you know, it's like saying new. I'd be suspicious, and I'd encourage you to, to, to resist that. Um, 
And virtuosity, you know, right now in dance studies at least, there's a, the anti-virtuosic kind of um, police are still, they're still running the show, which is great and fine. You know, so right now it's, it's, it's not cool to talk about virtuosity as an end that somehow is universally recognizable. So if we're going to talk about virtuosity, it's going to have to be in a context that's about maybe an intervention of some sort. So the virtuosity of the Vogers, the way I'm talking about it now, is in relationship to the disappearance of queer black people, queers of color in the mainstream. So it's in a relationship to some other circumstance. It's not a universal free-floating thing. You're not just virtuosic or a masterful. Um, it's in relationship to other kinds of tensions being brought to bear. And I think this idea of how women keep disappearing from this narrative of queer dance is really speaking to me, and I'm trying to figure that out. Like, you know, the archive keeps pointing towards the men. The archive keeps, we see men, 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 men. And so, you know, I'm really curious about that. And then the J-setters who invent J-setting, the women, you know, like, J-setting doesn't become a thing that we're all talking about until the men start doing it. That's kind of perverse, bizarre, but isn't it just how things are? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so I, if I heard you at the end correctly, that, that we're starting to see, uh, even when right, Michelle and Hillary are doing it, there there is some queer presence mm -hmm. uh, visible. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think back to that, I was having studied hip hop a little bit yeah. and thinking about white appropriation of hip hop or yeah. white engagement with hip hop. Uh, that great it was a great take wrote the book you know yeah. what do white people take from hip hop right. everything but the burden yeah. uh, is is kind of a line that stuck with me and and it seems to me if we can see queer bodies a little bit now mm -hmm. uh, but we haven't gone all the way to the next step how could we recognize that next step or or what would that next step be I mean I, I'm curious how you see yeah. that what does it look like. Yeah, that's great. Women yeah. in the archive. Yeah, that's you know, that's one. There you go. Yeah, yeah. You know, women in the archive, queer women in the archive. So, you know, expanding the archive. It's expanding spaces, you know. It's, it's making spaces that can be held. I mean, I think, you know, RuPaul does his shows. And by 2015, you know, kind of high drag. It's people kind of sort of know what that is. So even as there's resistance and there's... You know, there's real material um, danger for being effeminate as a male, for being really butch as a female, for being trans, for, for figuring out how to live gender-wise in the world. Um, there's, there's slightly more pressure brought to keep the spaces open. So next is keeping those spaces, I would say, is, is keeping making those spaces by doing this work and telling these stories. You know, like, it's, it's, it's very... Um, What's the word? Um, exploitative. The dan the prancing, you know, the prancing, what are they called? Prancing elite. Yeah, prancing elites, yeah. You know, it's exploitative. And, you know, those, the, these performers get a chance to be in the reality TV spotlight. And, but now we're in such a feedback loop. They know it's exploitative, but they also know it's their moment. So, you know, they get to be on oxygen for a few months and give it a go. And maybe it'll turn into something else. The something else is so indeterminate now for so many people in a way that 20 years ago, you know, people in this room would have a stronger sense of what was next. But now fewer people on the planet have a sense of what's next. So this indeterminacy, I think, makes, makes those spaces feel 
um, more vital, but also more desperate in some ways. So, you know, the next is figuring out maybe how to recognize each other and following Tony's idea to, 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 to recognize these kinds of lineages and genealogies and, and constantly imagine how we're in connection. So not silo ourselves, but recognize that we're connected to these older dancers, these dancers who are gone, um, these people who are trying to dance now. Um, you know, there's a connectivity that could be productive. I don't know. Yeah. Well, if you have more comments or questions, Tommy will be here for a few minutes. Uh, but please join me in thanking Tommy DeFrance. Aww.